Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading is from Psalms chapter 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The New Testament reading is from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and it's wonderful to be with you this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Jefferson Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Presbyterian Church, and uh, it's such a joy uh, to be able to open the Word of God together uh, here on May 8th, this Mother's Day. If you're a mother, happy Mother's Day. The, um, I wonder if you ever heard this story before. It's the story of glory. Anyone ever heard this before? The story of glory. It goes like this. There's four parts to it, okay? You have the first act where glory and all of its wonder and its beauty and its joy was full and complete, and we were at peace, and we were at home, and we were right with God himself walking in the garden. There was no sickness, no pain, no envy, no deceit, uh, nothing that would cause us division, nothing that would cause us brokenness. And that glory that we had in that garden uh, was lacking nothing, full. All glory came from God. All glory was given back to God. And it was perfection. 
The second chapter in the story of glory is we lost that glory. Glory lost. Some of you know the story with Adam and Eve where they uh, disobey God in the garden and they take that fruit uh, even though they knew they were not supposed to and ushered in a whole curse and a whole system of uh, violence against God and against each other. This sin uh, turned uh, us inward, away from the Lord, and it tarnished our glory and uh, robbed us of it. Which leads us to the third chapter of the story of glory, and that is when uh, glory was sought or um, uh, searched for. We, we enter into a season, into a, into a world where we are hungering and thirsting for the glory that was lost and unable to satisfy. So what happens in that chapter of humanity is, is um, we start fabricating or counterfeiting, making these false little idols, these false little senses of glory that we would somehow seek to satisfy that longing in us deep within for all that was right, for all that glory that we once had. And so that search for glory uh, went on and on and on until one day God brought glory back into the world, didn't he? When Christ Jesus came and he said, I am the bread of life, when he said, I am living water, when he said, I am the one you've been waiting for, that was God giving glory back to humanity. And for those who have trusted Christ, we receive that glory in part now and fully when we go to be with him forever. At the consummation, at the, at the summation of all that God has intended for his people. That is the story of glory, and I hope that it'll help us frame this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, because that's a big theme for Paul and Silas and Timothy as they write this letter to the church. I want to look at three things briefly this morning that um, if you are, anytime you're reading the, the Bible, you can sort of ask these three questions the questions I want to consider are, what does this passage in 1 Thessalonians tell us about God? What does this passage tell us about the world? And what does this passage tell us about ourselves, or in this case, the church? And the take-home sentence that we'll kind of weave throughout this morning's message is this, because the gospel of God that beautiful, glorious gospel restores glory to the church. The church, starting with its leaders, should seek its glory from God and not from others. So because the gospel of God restores glory to the church, the church, starting with its leaders, should seek glory from God and not from others. Okay, we've got that in place. Let's pray and ask the Lord to do something with it. Lord, thank you for your presence with us. We've already heard from you by the uh, reading of your word and by the hearing of your uh, 
gospel assurance proclaimed to us, the singing of the hymns, and we are so thankful, Lord, for your presence here. I pray that you would help us to see you this morning, to know you, and to love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So in our passage this morning from 1 Thessalonians, there's a few big picture items that I want us to sort of note here at the beginning. First, we know from the book of Acts, which records the birth of this church in Thessalonica, uh, that the Apostle Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, were in the city for potentially as little as three weeks. It says they spent three Sabbaths there. Now, if you've ever been on a mission trip before, you might say to yourself, well, three weeks, that sounds like a good amount of time, you know, for a, a little jaunt uh, uh, with a new church. But the problem is, is that this church, when they got there, didn't exist. There was no church. So they show up uh, to the synagogue that first Sabbath, and they're literally opening the Old Testament and preaching the gospel of Christ Jesus for the first time uh, to these hearers. And they preach this gospel, and those hearing it are cut to the heart, and they realize, oh my goodness, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one bringing glory back to Israel that we've been waiting for. Uh, And so Acts 17 says this in verse 4, Some of them, the Jews, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But pretty quickly, perhaps before even the fourth Sabbath, The Jewish leaders go to the house where they thought the Apostle Paul was staying. Uh, They attacked this house with a mob. And when they couldn't find Paul and his companions, they got the owner of the house named Jason. And they brought him out uh, and several other new converts to Christianity. They took him to the local authorities and they got them imprisoned uh, for inciting this mob. And um, when they realize, the church realizes that they're after Paul and the companions, they sort of sneak them out by night. And this letter is the first uh, moment that this fledgling church is hearing from Paul and Timothy and Silas. This is the first word they've gotten back since all this went down. They accepted Jesus, some of them were thrown in prison, and now they're hearing from these messengers of God. So first, let's look at what this letter tells us about God. What I hope to show you is that God's gospel rescues us from our old motives and methods. God's gospel rescues us from our old motives and methods. The gospel, which literally means good news, hit hit this bad news world like the crack of a baseball bat on a 100-mile-hour pitch. I mean, it just was mind-blowing for the people hearing it. And you can see that by the response it garners in the hearers, right? Some people literally fall down or are like, I will give my life to this. I will give my life to Christ. And others are going out of their mind crazy, uh, trying to get people imprisoned and murdered and try for for just talking about the scriptures. Something had happened that was um, uh, immense and immensely important. The gospel message of God's love and grace was literally, in Acts uh, Acts 17, the enemies there say, this is turning the world upside down. 
It's turning everything we know on its head. And ironically, that's kind of how God chose to make peace in a world that's at war with itself. He turns it on its head. See, when Jesus Christ went to Calvary, he busted up the very foundation of how this world works. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. That method of of dealing with mankind was, was totally undone. This selfish motive of trying to do what you can to really just serve yourself was replaced by a king on a cross. That's how he brought peace, by laying down his life. But he not only brought peace, he also brought purity. In Psalm 12, we had read just a minute ago, it says, God's words are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Purified seven times. Perfection. The message is all who have messed up can get cleaned up, can be forgiven, can be made right and new. How? By Christ's peace and by his purity. Now, Paul and Silas and Timothy, the authors of this letter, they mention God five times just in these seven verses. Two times they're concerned with the boldness of the gospel that they're proclaiming, that God allowed them to proclaim it boldly in the midst of conflict and opposition, which we've mentioned. Three times, though, in regard to God approving the apostles as their judge and their witness. Now, that's interesting. And this highlights a truth about God that is found everywhere in the scriptures. And that is this. While the world looks at the results, what did you do? What did you get done? What did you accomplish? God is actually looking at the motives and the methods that you use to get there. He's more interested in the heart. There's lots of places that we see this. To name a few, Psalm 17, you tried my heart. You visited me by night. You have tested me. Psalm 26, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart. And my mind, Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, because these people draw near with their mouth, honor me with their lips, right? Those are the results. He says, while their hearts were far from me, God is looking at the motives. He's looking at the methods of the heart. And this is crucial to the apostles' witness amongst the Thessalonians and every other Greek in that day, because much like today, virtue was high in demand but low in supply. Man, the Greeks really, I mean, they had some great philosophy. I don't know if you know this, but they're kind of known for philosophy. And they had some some really high virtues, but the people living them out were really few and far between. And so his audience knows if God is virtuous and if God is good, and he's actually sending his spirit into the world, then his messengers can't have bad motives or bad methods. They can't have it mixed up. In other words, if Christ came to restore glory, glory of God to us, it would be treasonous for his messengers to go back to the counterfeit glories 
of the world. I don't know if you guys have seen this. Some of the adults in the room might have seen the movie The Godfather. Um, For kids, it's a really intense movie. Um, That uh, I will summarize for you right now. Um, It's uh, this whole concept, though, with The Godfather, where you know, he, he invites people in from the, from the community. He hears their stories and he asks them questions. You know, he, he sort of, and then, and then he, he gifts them things. You know, he says, he says oh, you need, you need something done over there. I'll, I'll take care of it. Or he says, yo, you, you need a, 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 someone to talk to about that, that issue you're having. He said, consider it done. And everyone, when they get done talking to the godfather, um, they're, they're so happy, right? Because this guy has power, he has influence, and they're so excited to get what they need from him. But then, every time, he says this to them as they're walking out the door. He says, and uh, should ever you need, you know, should ever I need a favor from you, I'm going to give you a call and you remember this. What's he doing? He's sort of setting the hook, right? To say, I did this for you, but I'm going to need you to do something for me that you scratch my back, I scratch yours mentality. And this is how the Roman world worked in Paul's day. There were all sorts of rules and all sorts of customs for how to give a gift in such a way as to place people in your debt. There were no free gifts. Everything was for personal gain and had serious strings attached to it. That's how this world worked. The motives, in other words, were corrupt. They'd help you out. But really, it was about helping themselves out. So if God rescues us from our old methods, our old motives, then the application would be this for our first point. Just simply, Christians, check your motives and your methods often. Check them daily get feedback from friends. I mean, Paul wants them to know, look, you know what we were like. You saw God is our witness. God tested us. He approves of what our intentions are. So go and do the same. Do likewise. Get your hearts clean. Get your hearts refreshed. Get your hearts renewed. Get feedback from others, from friends, from roommates, a spouse, a life group leader, a pastor. Get feedback on your life. If you can find a good therapist, which can be hard, it's worth the money to get help understanding your own motives and your own methods. We can't love God with our whole heart if there are parts of our heart that we simply have never explored. And that is what God wants to do. The Thessalonian church, that's what he wants to do for us. He wants our whole hearts to be with him, to give us peace and purity, and to restore the glory of God in his people. Second point, what does this passage tell us about the world? In the title, you probably saw that, uh, it's up there, isn't it? No, it went away. The title of this sermon is, um, God, Greeters, Leaders, Whose Glory Are You Living For?, 
And the second part, this word that I think I made up because spell check kept telling me it's not a word, is greed greeters. What are greeders? Greeters are not greeters, if you served on the greeting scene this morning, by the way. Greeters. If these greeters are these worldly church leaders and Christians who selfishly live for the counterfeit glory of this world. Greeters are the worldly church leaders, Christians who live selfishly for the counterfeit glory of this world. Now, you might be scratching your head and say, why, why does he say church leaders and Christians? Well, mostly because Paul is having to give a defense here early on in his letter to the Thessalonians of his own legitimacy as an apostle. Did you catch that? He kept going on out of his way to say, this is what we've been like, this is what we've done. And we know from other letters that after the early churches were established, oftentimes leaders arose from within those churches, and they had some seriously messed up motives and some weird, wacky ideas. An example could be found in the letter of Philippians where Paul writes, quote, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Isn't that amazing? It's like, we're not even, even how many decades into the church, and like already this is happening. The latter, they do it out of love, knowing I'm here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of, listen to this, selfish ambition, not sincerely. And today, in the age of celebrity, where a healthy following can land you richer than you ever imagined, there are a ton of compromised pastors and Christian leaders, and consequently, the, the Christians that follow them, who don't even know that the church model and the culture they're in is corrupt. I chose Psalm 12 for the Old Testament reading for this fact that that was written by David a thousand years prior to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, which tells me that this is not just a Thessalonian issue or a first century issue. This is not just a modern issue today of celebrity, but this is actually a universal issue common to all people at all times. In verse 2 of Psalm 12, it says, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Flattering lips and a double heart. Oh, that doesn't sound good. Now you might be saying, as sometimes I, you know, in the real world, it's kind of like, well, I mean, how would you ever even survive without flattery, right? Like, how does this outfit make me look? Great. I, you know, it's like sort of just to, to get by, you just have to flatter. But the problem is, is that um, it is a big deal. Flattery is a big deal. Double-heartedness is a big deal. Um, I had a friend in London, who was an older Chinese uh, man, um, Christian man, and Philip, he was so faithful, he like fixed everything, he was like the MacGyver of our church, and he was always fixing stuff, and um, one day I just said, oh, Philip, thanks so much, man, you're awesome, and he looked at me like I had just, you know, done something terrible, his eyes were big as saucers, and I said, what is this about, and he said, only God is awesome. I've never forgotten that. <laughs> I also don't tell people they're awesome. So <laughs> if I've never said you're awesome, 
That's why it's Philip's fault. But it made me think, how often do we use flattery in our language? How often do we just roll off the tongue? Like, oh, you're so great. Oh, I love you. You're great. You're awesome. And how often is it times, I have to check my heart often, how often is it time where it's really more about just kind of winning that person to yourself? Wanting to have that person on your side. We look at what the psalmist says right after he mentions flattery and double-heartedness. The poor are plundered. Meaning flattery and double-heartedness or a twisted tongue and mixed motives are connected not just to one another, but they're ultimately connected to suffering and to injustice. I.e. flattery and a double heart. Ultimately, it uses others in order to serve self. So when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, the assumption is most people love or take care of themselves. Just says, you kind of do, most people do this naturally. You should go and do it to others. That's not to say that self-hate and self-harm aren't a real growing issue for our country right now. They are. Um, But that the underlying issue is the same, whether it's self-love or self-hate, there's too much self involved. Our eyes have to actually be lifted up out of our own selves, our own circumstances to Jesus and to his word and to what he has said will be true. And we need to remember that and to walk in light of that. They need to be lifted from the counterfeit glories of this world, the Instagrams and the TikToks and the Facebooks. They need to be set on Christ, his word, his church, his work. In 1 Thessalonians 2.3, the apostle writes, Our appeal does not spring from error, impurity, or any attempt to deceive, for we never came with words of flattery, nor with the pretext for greed. Now, each of these words, error, impurity, deceit, they all have this connotation of greed. The semantic range on all of them always kind of include this greedy, selfish gain. And it doesn't always mean money either. It, it does partly in this letter, but greedy can also be for glory. You just you want that thing, that counterfeit thing that will help satisfy your longing deep down. Which is why in verse 4 the apostles say this, we sought not glory from people, whether from you or from others. Right? They're tying it into that, that idea. We weren't greedy. We weren't greedy for your money. We weren't greedy for your approval or for your friendship or for your accolades. And this world, in its ways, produced greeters that scratch my back, I scratch yours. And Christians who use others for selfish motives is one of the results we see, I think, in our country and our world today. Whatever the end is, money, approval, accolades, the greeter will flatter will winsomely engage everyone who they think they can benefit from, that will benefit their selfish motive. It's interesting that that word pretext there is used. Paul is saying that we never, we didn't try and cover anything up. That's what that word means. We didn't try to cover up our greediness or gain. There wasn't some ulterior motive that we were after here. God tested our hearts. God knows. But The world does that, right? They cover up, hide their motives, 
so you can get what you want without people ever knowing they're being used, hopefully. That's the hope of the greeter. And this is why the night that Jesus was betrayed, none of the disciples knew Judas was going to betray him. Did you guys catch that? The, the, the night he's betrayed, he says, one of you will betray me. Nobody goes, it's Judas Iscariot. I saw him in the poor box. Nobody knew. He had covered it up like beautifully. They each said, is it me? Am I going to betray you? And what was Judas after? <clears throat> Money, for sure. But glory? Glory? I think so. You see it in Acts 5, where Ananias and drop dead for covering up their greed. What were they after? Money, for sure, but glory. Everyone was doing it, was getting credit for doing it. Barnabas gets named for doing it. It's like this great thing. We're selling a property. We're giving it to the poor. We're giving it to the church. We're laying it at the apostles' feet. But they covered up their lies. They didn't give it all, and they said they did. Or in Acts 8, when Simon the sorcerer, this is hilarious, Simon the sorcerer says, sees the apostle Peter heal somebody, and what does he say? He says, how much money do you want for this gift? How much can I buy this power from you for? You remember what Peter says? Peter doesn't hold any punches. Peter says, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You have no part in this. Your heart is not right with God. And he calls him to repentance. He says, repent and believe the true gospel. There is no price tag here. You can't gain. You can't put God or others in your debt. And that's why James says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil because it's not just money you go after. The money is a means to gaining glory. I hope this is coming through loud and clear. Christian, your life is not your own. It was bought with the precious blood of Christ Jesus. And it extends far past yourself. Your salvation, my salvation, is more than just getting you out of jail free. It's about living the beautiful life that we just sang about, that we proclaim each week. It's about living in the light of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And that is what he wants to do. That's why his spirit exists. That's why we're Trinitarian. That's why Christ came and resurrected and didn't stay in the tomb, so that we could have life abundant. I've had several faithful pastors in my life through the years, and I praise God for each one of them. Uh, one pastor in high school, though, comes to mind when I think about this sort of subtle creep of motivation, um, selfish motivation. Um, my senior year of high school, I attended this smaller congregation, and uh, like a lot of smaller, older congregations at the time, uh, they had hired this young pastor uh, with his young family to come in and revitalize this dwindling congregation. And by revitalize, they meant what? Get more people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how that always, that's, it's like universal. Anytime you say revitalize, no one's talking about discipleship usually. They're talking about, we need people in the pews, please. So the pastor was able to do that. He was able to get people in the pews for a couple of years. Things seemed to be going great, but small change after small change after small change finally culminated 
in the church being told by the pastor that they needed to sell their building and they needed to go and build a copycat building of the big church in town. That that's what God's plan was and purpose was for them as a congregation. They needed to copy what someone else was doing in town um, if they wanted to be faithful. And this just broke the back of the church. It wasn't about the relocation so much as it was about this greed, this longing to get what somebody else had, this counterfeit glory of the world. I called that church this morning, by the way, and um, it's disconnected. Can't get through. The line's dead. And that's exactly what greedy, selfish Christianity becomes, disconnected from God and from others. So the application simply being, don't believe the American lie, which says, bigger is what? It's really not. And calls greed good. Money itself isn't evil. The love of it is the root. But be on guard against the love. Be on guard against the greed and the selfish ambition, which can come so quickly. Our third point and final What does this passage tell us about ourselves? What does it tell us about the church? What does it tell us about church leadership? It tells us this. The church's leadership's conduct is directly, it directly affects the effectiveness of the message. Paul is greatly concerned that the Thessalonians do not somehow get um, turned or tricked by those around him thinking, that these guys were just blowing smoke, that they were talking about all this stuff, but actually it really, when, when, when rubber meets the road, it has no, no effect in your life. Throughout the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they highlight this conduct. Chapter 1-5, which was preached last week, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. There it is. You know what kind of people we were among you, remember? Later in chapter 2, the worked a day during the week so that they wouldn't have to be a burden. They wouldn't have to take a single dime from this new baby church. You are witnesses, they said, and also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So let's go to the close of chapter 2 in verses 5 to 7 for our section this morning at least. It says this, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext of greed, God is a witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle or infants among you. We were infants among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. You see, unlike the greeters of the world around them, the apostles, they're hiding nothing. The good, the bad, the ugly, you get it all when you look at the apostles' lives, don't you? Because they're not interested in covering up sin, and neither is God. They're not interested in protecting their own glory, and why not? It's because their conduct is so important. They're the deliverers of the gospel. They are the mouthpieces of Christ Jesus resurrected from the grave and ascended. It doesn't get more important than that. 
A reproach on an apostle is, an, is a reproach on the gospel they preach, which isn't a reproach on Christ himself. That's what Paul tells Timothy and Titus, a pastor must be above reproach because they represent Christ. That's why an elder's conduct must be well thought of by outsiders because they represent this universe upending gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And it's why in Galatians 2, when the apostle Peter decided that he was going to show partiality for the Jewish Christians and separate from the Gentile Christians, Paul says this. He said, I called Peter out in front of the entire assembly because he, quote, denied the gospel. Peter didn't even open up his mouth. How did he deny the gospel? Because his conduct was out of accord with Christ's love and grace. He says, I called it out. In 2 Corinthians, the church leaders are called ambassadors. So they and those who follow them are all the world has. Listen to this. They're all the world has to get a glimpse of what God is like. That's all the world gets to know whether or not God's spirit is actually real and working. Not perfectly, of course, but permanently. Permanently. Faithfully demonstrating God's power to heal the earth. We don't have time to get into it, but side note, Paul is not saying that pastors can't earn a living for their work. Um, he goes into great lengths uh, in the Corinthian letters to demonstrate that. And he even says in this passage, though we could have made demands as apostles. Did you catch that? So it's not like they couldn't have said, we need support while we're here preaching among you. It's just that they were so, so, so careful with this brand new baby of a church to not put any sort of burden or hindrance on them. So careful. They became like infants needing very little to be content. They became like nursing mothers, focused solely on the health of this baby church. How beautiful is that? The apostles, they've got two things on their minds when they roll into Thessalonica. Christ, his gospel, and Christ's people, wherever they might be. They're not thinking of themselves, not in the way that we typically think of ourselves. They're thinking Christ and his people. I guess it's fitting on Mother's Day to mention the incredible role that mothers play in the lives of infants in particular. If you're a dad or if you have siblings this young or a grandparent, you've been close enough to watch sort of the miraculous thing that takes place, watching a mother try and keep a newborn alive. The thing needs to eat like 100 times a day. <laughs> and like 100 times more at night. It's like this, this woman becomes this life-giving storehouse for everything that this baby needs. And it's not just that your schedule changes. It's you watch her 
body change. You watch her diet change. You watch her moods change. Everything changes in order to serve this baby in the infant years and to keep that baby alive and well. That's the image that Paul and the apostles are using with this church. So like We became like a nursing mother to you, so concerned with you. We weren't going to let our conduct uh, be something to get in the way. We weren't going to let even rights that we had get in the way. We're laying sort of everything aside so that we could love and deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ to you in its purity and its peace. So the application would be if you're looking for a church, choose your church and its leaders well, carefully. Ask hard questions. And um, For those of us here at this church, I'm a pastor here. I've got several pastors here. To our, my fellow pastors and shepherd leaders, the application is be like this. Be like the apostles. Let your conduct be in accord with the gospel. Am I going out? Let your conduct be in accord with the glory of the gospel. Let your preaching infiltrate every cavity of your own heart and beautify your practice, the motive and the method. Don't let the world co-opt you into some counterfeit glory because that will kill the church. Numbers, buildings, attendance, budgets, none of that will sustain a church. How many megachurches this year did we see go down? Not because there ain't money in the bank. Not because there ain't people showing up to the services. Because the leaders went down. The greed came out. Only the gospel of God preached and practiced. Redemption rehearsed by God's grace will be sufficient for the kingdom of heaven. I'd like to close with some of these questions uh, for us. What is this? Whose glory are you living for? And we'll end here. Whose glory are you living for? If you're anything like me, then maybe this short list will be helpful. Uh, the temptation will be to live for the glory that comes from your boss, which can result in what? Overworking, neglecting other God-given roles, Fear, anger, anxiety. The temptation could be to live for the glory that comes from your parents or your in-laws, which will result in restlessness and copying whatever life they lived, trying to make sure you measure up. Or maybe it's a spouse, which can result in a one-sided, short-sighted household, where if you have kids, the discipleship gets lopsided and priorities are askew. It could be you're living for the glory that comes from friends or neighbors, which can result in keeping up with the latest toys and trends, accumulating more and more and more. Maybe for you it's popularity. Just imagining yourself in that elite crowd, which results in you altering your personality and interests and all sorts of things just to fit in. Whose glory are you living for? The temptation is, is to try and fill it with counterfeits. But 
What Christ came to do was to tell us the truth, to uncover all darkness and lie, and to say sin is a trap. It is a trap. It's serious. You never know where the next one will lead you. I have a friend who a few years ago uh, left ministry uh, to become a financial advisor and um, things were going great, CNN, Fox, I mean, you name it, this person was off the charts uh, successful. Um, Unfortunately, uh, he lied and he um, uh, created a Ponzi scheme of sorts and uh, ended up owing millions of dollars to people that he lied to. Um, And on the day that his books were due, he disappeared. Uh, Nobody's seen him for several years now. His wife and his young children, they don't know where he is. He's on the FBI wanted list. He owes millions of dollars to these people. And as sad and heartbreaking as that is, it's cemented in my mind about how important our conduct is and how important our repentance is. When we do this thing every week, we're not just going through the motions. We're saying it's life and death when it comes to sin. Christ Jesus came to give life, so we're going to get it out in the open now before it takes root, before it gets hold of my heart or my mind, before it takes Jesus came to give you freedom, Christian, to give you life, to see you through that valley of the shadow of death, not to to die, to lead you through it, and to breathe new life into your bones, your souls, your hearts, every inch of you. That is what is on the table this morning, to go to Christ, to get free, to get healed, to get renewed. Let's pray to that end. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.